0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Queensland's commercial fishers warn seafood lovers they'll pay more for fish if plans to expand exclusion zones go ahead.
2: This Marine park review this will cripple my business plus every other commercial fisherman there's 90 percent to 95 percent off my income. So you know 30 years of my life just equates to nothing with this government.
1: And the world's most senior leader of the Anglican Church, the Archbishop of Canterbury, travels to Yaraba for the ordination of three Indigenous women.
3: I well, it's really awesome, you know. I mean, to someone who just buried the Queen, and they're coming here to adorn us, it just feels out of world.
1: <laughs> I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Whadjuk country. High school students in regional Victoria fear they'll start their exams at a major disadvantage, with floods displacing families and causing significant disruption to study. Many students have had their homes or schools inundated or cut off, and they can't readily access their teachers. They also are having issues accessing the internet. Currently, 81 schools and 59 early learning centres are closed because of the floods. Greer Thompson is a student at St. Joseph's College in Echuca, a town that is currently building a two-kilometre levee out of sandbags to try and protect itself from a second inundation with the rising Murray River threatening up to 2,000 homes. Greer spoke to to our reporter, Shannon Schubert, about the added stress the situation has placed on her just over a week from the start of her VCE exams.
4: Several times I've sat down to study and you just stare blankly at your like at your page, and there's a, always the sound of sirens in the distance. So, uh, like, it's just, it honestly feels a little bit apocalyptic. Like, everyone's preparing. It's, everything's so unknown. I haven't studied in about a week, and my final exams are in two weeks. It's just a real shame because, you know, you work so hard for six years and for, you know, your entire year 12, and it's going to be, it could be undone by poor performance in exams because you actually can't study.
0: Is that stressful for you to think about?
4: It's extremely stressful. I mean, the entire year has been working to get into my course. And, you know, if I don't get into my course or it would just be devastating because of just because of a natural disaster, really. I know that I would have performed well and to the best of my ability if none of this happened. But yeah, there's nothing anyone can do. It's just, yeah, it's just disappointing. I've been displaced. I lost my house. So... I'm staying temporarily with friends. Um and it's just, you know, you're in a different environment, you're with different people. My mum and I have been separated, so we're staying at different places. Um, we meet every day for, you know, a coffee or something, but cafes have been closed down. It's just that sort of stuff that it keeps it keeps piling up. Yeah.
0: Do you know if your house is okay or how long you might be away from it for or?
4: Um, the house isn't okay. It's um Yeah, it's pretty damaged. There's probably a metre through of water. We put everything up. We were basically given 24 hours to evacuate, including furniture up or out if you want it safe. Yeah, the water's gushing through our street like it's a, a brand new river. We probably won't be back until at least after Christmas.
0: I imagine your teachers have been pretty understanding and I hope it makes you feel better to know we are expecting the state government to make some sort of announcement regarding exams and flood affected students so that hopefully there will be some support available or some allowances in terms of you know that exam performance. So I guess that, that news, does that make you feel a little bit relieved?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean I know that some HSC exams have been cancelled. It's um, a possibility maybe that some VCE exams will be cancelled but Teachers have been incredibly supportive and just really understanding. Of course, they want us to do our best, but they know at the moment there's more important things to be focused on, and one of those is helping the community get through it.
1: Greer Thompson, a student at St. Joseph's College in Echuca in Victoria. And since Shannon spoke to Greer, there was a media conference this afternoon and the Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews confirmed VC students like Greer, who are affected by the floods, will be given special consideration with their exams and will be offered what's called derived examination scores. Now, often these are referred to as a DES and a derived score is used in extenuating circumstances that affect a student's exam period to make sure their final results reflects their expected level of achievement based on the students' work over the year. And you can hear how devastated Greer is there. Now, the Education Department has established a dedicated hotline for flood-affected schools and VCE students, and that number is 1-800-717-588. So if you know someone who's affected, 1-800-717-588.
5: You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio.
1: And you're with me, Sinead Mangan. There was a warm welcome, praise for God, and of course, joyful singing and prayer as the Archbishop of Canterbury's tour of Australia came to an end in far north Queensland. Archbishop Justin Welby, who delivered the sermon at Queen, Queen Elizabeth's funeral, wed Prince Harry and Meghan, and will crown King Charles III next year, was on Thursday Island on the weekend after touring flood affected New South Wales. In Yarrabe yesterday, the community opened its church and its heart to the world's most senior leader of the Anglican Church for the ordination of three Indigenous women. <laughs>
6: I wanted very much to meet indigenous groups here, First Nations, um, as I've been doing in various places around the world. And uh, the bishop said, well, you know, we could do an ordination because it's due if we shifted the date, we could do it. And it's such a treat to do an ordination anyway, let alone to do it in such an extraordinary atmosphere. It was just a privilege.
7: And I guess, you know, you've ordained not one but three Indigenous women into the Anglican clergy today. How did you feel about being part of
6: today's event? I felt very unworthy of it, very overwhelmed by the whole experience, and just thinking this is such a remarkable thing to find myself doing this and how generous of them to allow me to do it.
7: You have been in the Torres Strait over the weekend, I understand. Why did you choose to go to the Torres Strait?
6: Because it was clear from the briefing I was given that Torres Strait Islanders have a distinct and um, slightly different culture from many of the Aboriginal peoples and nations across Australia and therefore... It was important to get a sort of complementary view, to see a bit of both rather than just one. Part of the point of this visit is, as I put it, the first welcome country inferred, I need to move from unconscious ignorance to conscious ignorance of the issues and begin that journey of listening and hearing and learning. And therefore it was really important to go to the Torres Straits. And, if I'm really honest, um, it's about the most, one of the most beautiful places I've seen in the world and the weather's great and the people are fabulous and the food was wonderful, so why not? What are the stories that you heard
7: from islanders in regards to rising
6: sea levels, climate change? Well, the rising sea levels and climate change come together with a number of other issues that they were telling stories about, about the new generation, about the struggles to keep a genuine awareness of culture, and what holds them together as a people and gives them their identity? Rising sea levels was the things that you see right around the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, particularly with low lying islands. Some of, I mean, Thursday Island has some high points, so it's not quite the same. But with the lower lying islands, the difficulty of um, digging uh, latrines, because uh, you hit water, the difficulty of getting fresh water the difficulty of, for instance, having to move places like burial grounds, which are everywhere, a really special place, and some places where they were near the sea are now slowly being engulfed. And that sense of threat, as well as the actual reality of climate change.
7: Do you think the Australian government needs to be doing more to to address climate change?
6: Well, I didn't come here to criticise the Australian government, but uh, let's broaden it out. I think those who've benefited from and benefit today from the wealth that has come at the cost of climate change over the last 100 years, 150 years, need to take a full responsibility um, and say to the world, yes it is our problem, the whole world, but it is especially our problem, the rich countries. We can't, as the old saying goes, go up the ladder and then kick it down behind us. We've got to make sure that every nation is able to face the challenges, and that will mean sacrifice.
7: For Yarabar resident Petronella Connolly, being ordained as a priest by the Archbishop of Canterbury in her hometown left her awestruck and looking forward to the future for herself and her community.
3: Well, it's really awesome, you know. I mean, to someone who just buried the Queen and like coming here to attend us, it just feels out of the world. <laughs> How important is it to have First
7: Nations women involved in the church,
3: in the clergy? Oh coaching? look, when we first became a deacon, I tell you now, when we first became a deacon, our husband said you should really step up a deacon, and we said no, we just just we're women. We can't do that, you know. And it's a men's world well we fell with a men's world so it took a while for us to actually step up to become a deacon and when we did you know it felt good but we were able to do more i think i believe in helping our people in the community because we were deacons and we did a lot of stuff like bible study and teaching and we went to do hospital visits and do communion in the community and we did a lot of stuff you know and there's a lot of people here are lost and they really need some, some stability in their life, because they're lost. And I believe we got it, we can give it to them, That's if they want, if, they, if they're willing, you know. And all they do, most of them is gamble, drink, and whatever, you know, and it's really sad because some of them is our family, you know. So we try and help them to, to uh, find the Lord or to do better for themselves, you know. Yeah. Yeah. We pray with them all the time. We help them in studies and things like that, you know. And a lot of times, they want want to go to certain people, they might come to you, and they ask you for prayer, so we pray with them, whatever the problem is, you know. We try to help them to solve it. Sometimes they have a mental issue, and that's a hard one, but we get there, you know.
1: Archbishop Justin Welby in Yarraba yesterday, along with Yarba man, Yarba woman, rather, sorry, Petronella Connolly and her sister-in-law Valmay Connolly, ordained as priests alongside Ainsley Danger, who was ordained as a deacon. He was speaking there to Christy Sexton McGrath. And the Archbishop concludes his tour of Australia today before departing, heading off on a plane for the cooler climes of the UK tomorrow. Lend us your ears and experience a world of audio content with ABC Listen. A world of sound. Like Expanse Pink Diamond Heist. How millions of dollars of diamonds were stolen in the middle of the bush and somehow smuggled to Europe. And dive deep beneath the surface of three crooked cobs
6: known as the Rat Pack. In, dig, sirens are coming. Dorothy handed Hallahan the money and when he walked off, the undercovers swooped. The ABC Listen app.
3: Lend me your ears.
1: Download it now from your app store. The <laughs> cat If you haven't listened to the Pink Diamond Heist yet, head to the Listen app and get your ears around it. Queensland's commercial fishing sector is pushing back against plans to expand no-net zones in the Great Sandy Marine Park in Wide Bay. There's just a matter of days until the state government closes community consultations on the draft zoning plan, which would see green zones increase threefold to 12.8%. Local industry says it would make for a complete shutdown of the region's fishing sector, while retailers warn that seafood lovers could be footing the costs of limited supplies. This report from Lucy Larram.
8: At the Urangan Marina, third generation fisherman Brett Fox is coming in from a fish off the coast of Harvey Bay. Like most days for the past 30 years, he's been fishing for the crowd favourites like whiting and prawns from the great sandy marine park. But all of that could change.
2: This marine park review, this will cripple my business plus every other commercial fisherman. It's just going to be a complete shutdown of commercial fishing in Harvey Bay, Wide Bay, uh, Bunberg, Kinkin Bay, Mariburra.
8: The state government is proposing to increase green zones in the marine park by 9%, forcing large mesh gill nets and ring nets out of the water. The commercial use of tunnel nets and small mesh bait nets is still permitted, but Mr Fox says it's not enough to sustain his business.
2: There's 90% to 95% off my income, so you know, 30 years of my life just equates to nothing with this government.
8: The Great Sandy Marine Park stretches south from Baffle Creek in the Gladstone region to Double Island Point, taking in 6,000 square kilometres of waters around Harvey Bay, Tinkan Bay, the Great Sandy Strait and the east coast of Gary, Fraser Island. Minister for the Environment Megan Scanlon says the draft zoning plan aims to protect the 23 threatened species that call the marine park home, while boosting tourism opportunities through the recreational fishing sector. So there's a whole range of
0: changes. They're all up online for people to have a look at and it is a draft consultation process
8: at the moment. So we encourage people to hop online, take a look, ask questions and provide your feedback. It was handed down by the government a month ago and Minister Scanlon says it's received more than 700 responses through community consultation. Look, I'm really keen to get
0: this resolved as quickly as we can. This has been a really lengthy process. The discussion paper was put out in 2019. Uh, There was a a review uh, process that was due to commence some time ago. So this has been a process everyone has known was coming for a long time. You know, we've had an independent scientific expert panel provide very detailed detailed advice. We've also had each of those industries provide that input. So I think we've already landed on a process and a, a point in time where a lot of the changes you would think would be fairly minor. Although again, we really need to let the consultation
8: process run its course properly, and we'll consider all of that feedback and then make a final decision. So what does this mean for the consumer? Further south in Brisbane, seafood retailer Warren List gets around 80% of his product from the Harvey Bay region. He says if the plan goes ahead, his customers could be paying more for popular products in the lead-up to Christmas.
5: Corn, crab, uh, a lot of fish. Well, we we don't want to actually source any overseas products. We prefer to keep it in Queensland so that we can sell a better quality product. It is way better quality we get customers tell us that their crab is ten times better, we'll have to put our prices up because we don't know how much we're going to get. Minister Scanlon
8: says the Department of Environment and Science is working with industry to provide financial packages for impacted businesses. We have some proposals we've put forward around obviously
0: uh, compensating those directly impacted but also uh, on some other uh, parts of the chain that will be impacted as well and so we want to work through the detail of that before we make a final announcement and package. But but I can assure people there is a compensation package
8: available that is fair. But Mr Fox is sceptical the compensation will be enough to cover the cost of an entire livelihood.
2: My quota is in the excess of five hundred thousand dollars that I can't use in this area now. Um, that's been built up over thirty years. My boats, gear, sheds, nets, and all the other stuff with it. I'd be looking well over two million dollars, and you know I've I've worked hard five, six, seven days a week for the last thirty years to accumulate that, and I might as well burn it now because that's it's useless. You know, um, there's nowhere else. This is one of the prime fishing areas in Queensland
1: commercial fisherman Brett Fox, ending that story from Lucy Laram in Bundaberg in Queensland. Racism within the Queensland Police Service's has been highlighted by a commission of inquiry originally set up to investigate the service's response to domestic violence issues, but expanded to look at the impact of racial prejudice within its ranks. It's an issue Sergeant Richard Monet, a First Nations man from far north Queensland, has been battling across a distinguished 26-year career in the service. But after more than a quarter of a century, it's a fight he no longer feels able, he can continue, and he's handed in his badge. Alex Easton filed this report.
5: Richard Monet grew up in Queensland watching the American police show Chips and dreaming of being a cop. One of my earliest Christmases, my parents bought me one of the Chips motorbikes
9: and um, that pretty much stuck and I told my father that my aspiration was to become a police officer.
5: It was a dream shared by little kids around the world watching Ponch Poncherello and John Baker chasing down bad guys on the highways of Los Angeles. But Richard Monet is an Indigenous Australian, a member of the Merriam, Karaik, and Gudung peoples, whose country covers Murray and Horn Islands and the northern tip of Cape York. And as he grew, that dream of becoming a cop was complicated by the fact Many First Nations communities see the police as the bad guys. Policing has been one of the big contributors towards how First Nations people perceive the police service because
9: of the fact that, or the nature of what police have done to First Nations people, all the atrocities. So the pushback was there. From not only from family, but extended families, but they were also supportive in the way that that's the only thing I've ever wanted to do.
5: And so when Richard finished high school and spotted an ad in the Townsville CES office for a bridging course that could get him into the Queensland Police, he jumped at it. The only problem was the course was 260 kilometres away at Innisfail and had started that morning. The coordinator basically said to me that um, if I was able to make it up on the next day, then he would accept
9: me on the course, even though being a day late. And I think he fell off his chair when he saw me there the next morning, around about eight 8.30 in the
5: morning. A year later, the dream came true. Richard arrived at the police academy at Oxley in Brisbane and immediately discovered a new hurdle, one he says would not go away. Racism.
9: My very first day rocking up to the station and seeing five other first-year constables interacting and engaging with their... Field training officers. I saw each one of them hop in their cars and with the first years driving their, the police cars out of the station. I'm thinking, wow, that's going to be me very soon. I remember the field training officer rocking up to the station, not acknowledging me in the day room, walking straight up to the duty officer, having conversations with them, and then turning around and telling me are you ready to go? And I said, everything's been packed up, let's go. And uh, the second thing the field training officer said to me was, give me the keys. And we drove out of the station with an awkward silence. And that was my first interaction t- in relation to joining the police service. And then you know, I was made to stand in the rain to give traffic control duties and do RBTs in the rain. I actually thought that that was a process of being broken into the organisation. So I accepted that that was a norm. Six months in, he learned he was actually being singled out. I was pulled aside by a training coordinator for the first year constable program and that sergeant said to me, are you going okay? I've heard that there have been some terrible things um, happening to you involving your field training officer. And that was the first time that I recounted the fact that, well, um, it must have been fairly obvious that other people were actually reporting that through to whether it was management or through to the first year constable program.
5: And it's not just a matter of individual actions and words from fellow police officers. Sergeant Monet says he realised it was an issue baked into the bones of the Queensland Police Service a few years ago when he was asked to help several of the state's police districts adapt official funeral protocols for First Nations peoples after several of the state's police liaison officers passed away in one year. That
9: was a massive uh, wake up for me to realise PLOs had been in existence for 30 years Yet our funeral protocols aren't adapted in a way that actually recognises our First Nations peoples.
5: In 2020, Sergeant Monet was among a group of First Nations officers given the opportunity to share their experience of racism within the service with Police Commissioner Katarina Carroll. It might have been a moment for change, but instead a short time later, Commissioner Carroll responded to the death in custody of a First Nations woman by telling media the police service was quote, in no way racist. And made me feel like, well, what was the point of actually coming forward and actually speaking about some of the instances
9: of my actual lived trauma? and my experiences within the Queensland Police Service to then have her say that, to shut my voice back down again and be locked away in the box.
5: Under cross-examination at the Commission of Inquiry into Queensland Police Responses to Domestic Violence, which was expanded to include racism, Commissioner Carroll this month eventually conceded that she knew there were racist people in the organisation. When she actually did acknowledge that, I actually felt
9: uh, an element of of relief That me as a First Nations person, but a
5: person of colour, I've now been heard, I've actually been seen. But while he sees Commissioner Carroll's admission as a breakthrough, Sergeant Manet had already decided he'd had enough. His September resignation letter formed part of the evidence to the Commission of Inquiry. He finishes with the Queensland Police Service on October 31. I no longer feel safe within my own organisation,
9: an organisation that I loved. Uh, when I joined this organisation, had high aspirations of creating change and reformative change, but I'm still fighting for change to this very day.
5: And although he feels he can't stay, Sergeant Manet still hopes to see the police service reform. Among the changes he wants to see are a dedicated inquiry into racism within the Queensland Police, a specific reconciliation action plan for the police service and a shift to authentic engagement with First Nations communities. If we're having people like myself,
9: First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people leaving this organisation because of the lack of cultural safety that's within the organisation, then how can we get it right externally?
1: Alex Easton speaking to Sergeant Richard Monet, a First Nations man from far north Queensland, about why he decided to leave the Queensland Police Force after 26 years of service. And that's Australia wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast Australia wide whenever you want to, at whatever time you want to. If you hit, if you go to the ABC listen app and type in Australia wide, you'll find us there. And um, why not subscribe while you're there? I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you have a lovely evening. Cheerio.